The Fall of Man. Thomas Boston, 1676 to 1732, in his great work on human nature and its fourfold state, gave an incisive analysis of man's psychology in the language of his day. Man's first condition was the state of innocence, before the fall. As to the righteousness of this state, consider, that as uncreated righteousness, the righteousness of God is the supreme rule. So all created righteousness, whether of men or angels, hath respect to a law as its rule, and a conformity thereunto. A creature can no more be morally independent of God, in its actions and powers, than it can be naturally independent on him. A creature, as a creature, must acknowledge the Creator's will, as its supreme law. For, as it cannot be without him, so it must not be but for him, according to his will. This righteousness of the state of innocence was mutable. It was a righteousness that might be lost, as is manifested by the doleful event. And herein believers have the advantage of Adam, that they can never totally or finally fall away from grace. Because happiness is the result of holiness, the state of innocence was a state of happiness. The penalty for sin was and is death, Genesis 2.27. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The death threatened was such as the life promised was, and that most justly, to wit, temporal, spiritual, and eternal death. The event is a commentary on this. For the very day he did eat thereof, he was a dead man in law, but the execution was stopped because of his posterity then in his loins, and another covenant was prepared. However, that day his body got its death wound and became mortal. Death also seized his soul. He lost his original righteousness and the favor of God, witnessed the pangs and throes of conscience, which made him hide himself from God. And he became liable to eternal death, which would have actually followed, of course, if a mediator had not been provided, who found him bound with the cords of death, as a malefactor ready to be led to execution. Thus, you have a short description of the covenant, into which the Lord brought man in the estate of innocence. The fall led to man's second condition, the state of depravity. God's grace and mercy led to redemption, and the third condition or estate of man, the state of grace. And fourth, the final condition of the redeemed is the state of glory. Our concern at present is with man's second state, depravity. The doctrine of total depravity is commonly misunderstood to mean that the natural or fallen man is incapable of ever manifesting any trace of human goodness. Clearly, this is not the case. What total depravity means is that the infection of depravity is total in man's being, i.e. every aspect of man's nature is corrupted and governed by his fall. The principle of the fall governs man's mind and will, his heart and tongue, and his every thought and act is governed by this false religious principle which governs his being. That false religious principle is stated by the tempter in Genesis 3, 4, and 5. Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Several premises appear in this declaration, and all were accepted by Adam and Eve and are basic to man's original sin and his psychology in the state of depravity. First, ye shall not surely die. God does not absolutely govern and predestine man and reality, and he therefore cannot predict consequences. For God thus to declare that disobedience has certain infallible consequences and that his law is absolute is held to be a lie. There is no eternal counsel and decree of God, no predestination, and no absolute law of God, according to the tempter. Man lives in an open universe, i.e. open to experiment and development and open to changes of ultimate law. 
Satan thus operated on an Arminian basis. He was ready to acknowledge that God is, and that he is very powerful. As St. James pointed out, the devils believe that there is a God and tremble at his power, James 2.19. They refuse, however, to acknowledge his sovereign, predestinating power. Ye shall not surely die. It is not infallible nor inescapable. It is possible or probable because God is very powerful. Because humanity's liberation movement requires that this power be defied and a blow for freedom struck, the claim to sovereign predestinating power must be denied. However likely God's reprisals may be, they are not absolutely certain, and this edge of uncertainty must be developed into humanity's liberation. Second, the presupposition of the fallen man, after Satan, is that God's purpose is to frustrate man and to prevent man's self-realization. Obedience to God is the enslavement of man, and disobedience to God is man's liberation. Liberation is thus made an essentially anti-God movement. The slaves of God are summoned to freedom, which is defined as the abandonment of God's law. Just as Adam and Eve were summoned to put their new religious principle to the test by breaking God's law, so every departure from God is in every generation put to the test by a religious violation of God's law. Humanity's liberation movement is thus by necessity lawless. Man's declaration of independence from God requires law-breaking. Proof of liberation from God is a contempt for his law. Lawlessness is thus a religious principle for the fallen man. He believes that the law is an impediment to man, an infringement on his liberty, and a denial of his potentiality. Third, basic to the religious faith of fallen man is the premise that man is his own god. If man is a god, then he cannot bow down to other gods. He must instead assert and develop his own godhead. The history of mankind is in part the attempt of fallen man to make that assertion. But to claim to be a god in the face of the creator god means waging war against that god. Two mutually exclusive claims cannot be tolerated. One of the gods must go, and fallen mankind is determined that the god of scripture must die. Socially, the outcome of this religious principle is anarchism. If all men can claim to be gods, then all men, as rival gods, will be at war with one another. The alternative is to make the state into a god and men into slaves of the state. Fourth, fallen man asserts that he can live beyond God's good and evil, because he himself can know or determine for himself what constitutes good and evil. This means that good and evil are entirely relative to man. There is no element of transcendence, and hence no moral necessity which binds man other than the obligation to be true to himself. Paradoxically, this self-styled God, immediately after making his religious stand, pleaded innocence by virtue of environmentalism. Adam blamed Eve and God for his sin. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Genesis 3.12 Eve in turn blamed the tempter. The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Genesis 3.13 Having asserted that they were gods, they now claim to be less than men. Environmentalism, which reduces man from a work of God to a product of the environment, goes hand in hand with humanism, with man's claim to be God. What lies behind this apparent contradiction, the assertion of divinity and the plea of environmentalism? To understand this strange union of ideas, let us examine the advertisement issued by a publisher of pornography to sell a book expressive of his philosophy. Don't leave love to chance. When you meet an attractive woman, make sure she's yours, in only five minutes, by developing the power of sexual visualization that all men have, but few know how to use.
Very crudely, the assumption is that a man can develop his powers to the point where any woman can be seduced in five minutes. Clearly, this involves a very low view of women, at least. The key to this strange view can be gained by analyzing Sartre's view of man. Man has no essence, no defined nature. He is a product of blind evolution. Because man has being but no essence, man must make himself, and he must make himself into a god. If man is a god, then his neighbor who claims to be a god is a threat and a devil to him, a challenge to his own claim. Both are without essence, in a sense. Both are products of a blind, meaningless environment, and hence even more meaningless than their environment which made them. The environment, nature, and the past, at least, made man. But man has not yet remade or defined himself and gained an essence. In this predicament, man, to be the god he aims at being, can only exercise his divinity in two directions, against his environment and against other men. He must make them. As a result, fallen man is especially active against his environment. Instead of living in it in terms of God's calling, he treats it as a hostile world to be brought into line by an enforced remaking which will put man's autonomous, anti-God imprint on it. Similarly, he does not live with other men under God's law, but in an attempt to play God in their lives. Significantly, the common term for seduction is making a woman. The seducer plans to use her and shape her to his will without regard to God's moral law or the woman's life and future. Briefly, if man will play God, he must have a world of people who can be used, who are the products of an environment and can be shaped by that environment. The godlike seducer of the pornographic advertisement becomes the brief but omnipotent environment of any woman and thus and thereby makes her totally in terms of his will. If, however, environmentalism is false, then men and women are creatures of God and made in his image. They cannot plead innocent by invoking an omnipotent environment. Instead of being gods on the one hand and victims on the other, fallen men are simply sinners. They cannot escape moral responsibility. To return to the pornographic advertisement, both the seduced and the seducer are sinners, and they must blame themselves for their sin. In their sin, both were equally at war with God and his law. Both were intent on a moral autonomy from God, and both were interested in self-satisfaction. The moral code of the fallen man was very briefly summarized, without any moral pretensions, by Ernest Hemingway, whose one-sentence manifesto held that, What is moral is what you feel good after, and what is immoral is what you feel bad after. This is faithfulness to man's fallen nature. As Thomas Boston stated it, Every man naturally loves to be at full liberty himself, to have his own will for his law, and if he would follow his natural inclinations, would vote himself out of the reach of all laws, divine and human. There is in the unrenewed will an utter inability for what is truly good and acceptable in the sight of God. The natural man's will is in Satan's fetters, hemmed in within the circle of evil, and cannot move beyond it, any more than a dead man can raise himself out of the grave. Ephesians 2.1 we deny him not a power to choose, pursue, and act what, as to the matter, is good, but though he can will what is good and right, he can will nothing aright and well. John 15.5 Without me, i.e. separate from me, as a branch from the stock, as both the word and context carry it, ye can do nothing. To wit, nothing truly and spiritually good. His very choice and desire of spiritual things is carnal and selfish. John 6.26 Ye seek me, because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. He not only comes not to Christ, but he cannot come, 
verse 44. And what can he do acceptable to God who believeth not on him whom the Father hath sent? Moreover, Boston pointed out, man's claim to be as God reveals itself in his will. The unrenewed will is wholly perverse in reference to man's chief and highest end. The natural man's chief end is not God, but himself. Most men are so far from making God their chief end in their natural and civil actions that in these matters God is not in all their thoughts, their eating and drinking, and such like natural actions are for themselves, their own pleasure or necessity, without any higher end. Zechariah 7.6 Did ye not eat for yourselves? They have no eye to the glory of God in these things, as they ought to have. 1 Corinthians 10.31 They seek God indeed, but not for himself, but for themselves. They seek him not at all, but for their own welfare. So their whole life is woven into one web of practical blasphemy, making God the means and self their end, yea, their chief end. Religion which treats God as a resource to be used by man is thus blasphemy. As a result, any pretended Christianity in which the absolute sovereignty of God and his predestinating counsel are denied is practical blasphemy, making God the means and self their end, yea, their chief end. The starting point of the fall was man's assent to the question, Yea, hath God said, Genesis 3.1, and his agreement with the assertion, Ye shall not surely die, Genesis 3.4. The predestinating power of God, his absolute law and decree, were denied, and all else followed from that. Man was then supposedly free to assert the autonomy and power of his own will against God. Man has not left the state of depravity as long as he continues to say, Yea, hath God said. Yea, doth God have an absolute law and decree? His will is then still wholly perverse, in reference to man's chief and highest end. The natural man's chief end is not God, but himself. But the chief end of man, as the Westminster Catechism rightly declares, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The Jesus freaks of 1970 and after claim to be Christians, and often reform themselves, abandoning drugs, for example, without acknowledging God's sovereignty. God was a new resource to be used. He was dad looking after them. He ostensibly provided new experience, like glossolalia, or supposed speaking in tongues, and provided them with a perfect insurance policy. As Jane Howard noted, these children feel invincible. So long as we keep our shield of believing up, as they say, their cars won't crash, they won't get cancer, and if they're drafted and sent to Vietnam, we won't be killed or even scratched. But why get uptight about the draft? Jesus, as they say, might be back before breakfast. Their 53-year-old leader, Dr. Victor Paul Weirwile, was quoted in a similar vein. As long as I'm here, he assured his audience, nothing bad can happen to you folks, because I'm not believing for it to happen. Oh, people, isn't it a beautiful trip to live and just ooze goodness wherever you go? Isn't it tremendous to be able to say, I know that I know that I know that I know? The God of such a religion has no relationship to the God of Scripture and resembles more nearly the tempter. That youth should desire such a God, a dad, is not surprising in a generation reared permissively. Frustration is then the intolerable sin, and gratification is equated with liberty and grace. In the most simple matters, the world must come to terms with the little gods, as witness a letter to the Ann Landers column. Dear Ann Landers, I am a 20-year-old boy who has been looking for a job for seven weeks. The last three places I applied seemed promising, but I wasn't hired. I decided to check back and find out why. 
All three personnel heads said my qualifications were excellent, but my appearance was against me. What it boiled down to was long hair and a short beard. I finally asked the last personnel guy if he would hire me if I cut my hair and shaved my beard. He replied, yes. I looked him straight in the eye and said, nuts to you, and walked out. The system is rotten, and this is proof. What is my hair and beard to do with my ability? I consider it my constitutional right to wear my hair any way I please and to have a beard if I want one. I would like your opinion on this. If I get the answer I want, I will take it back to those jerks and shove it in their stupid faces. Anlander's comment in part was, if an employer doesn't want a kid with long hair and a beard, it's his constitutional right not to hire him. When it has been a matter of serious belief that toilet training should not be forced on a child, it is not surprising that children have grown up unwilling to be crossed or denied. The child, as an heir of Adam, inherits a fallen nature and thus wants the world on his terms. Unless disciplined, the child is without the capacity to make useful even his own abilities and is in essence a natural anarchist. The god of such a generation is naturally a god of revolution, having been created in the image of modern man. Sontag calls for such a god a free god who is not himself tied to any law code, but is a god of perpetual revolution. Such a god is beyond good and evil, and thus, like his makers, beyond self-control. He resembles the tempter more than God, the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. This is not surprising. Man, the new God, seeks to make over the true God in his own image. This is his culminating folly.